Welcome to Hudson Institute, and we welcome our C-SPAN audience as well. <clears throat> My name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here at Hudson, and I will be moderating uh, this afternoon's panel, Can the Obama Administration's ISIS Strategy Work? Um, I believe that we've assembled here at Hudson a really fantastic panel to address a uh, remarkably timely issue, especially now during the midst of the Obama Administration's ISIS campaign. Uh, and we will talk about the campaign, but one of the other things that I want to do this afternoon is to really fill in a lot of questions which I think are still, um, I, th I think it's still kind of unclear who exactly ISIS is, where it came from, what its goals are, um, what its capabilities are, and I think that between the three panelists that we have here this afternoon, I think that we're going to get uh, a lot of answers and have a very interesting conversation. Uh, and fill in these issues in a way that other people have not. So I'm going to start introducing them. To my immediate left is Andrew Tabler from the Washington Institute. To his left is Hussein Abdul Hussein, the Washington Bureau Chief for Arai, uh, a Kuwaiti newspaper. And to his left is Michael Pregent, who among other things has served as an advisor to the Iraqi security forces, having spent a lot of time uh, throughout Iraq. I believe that uh, Mike can address a number of these issues. And he's going to start this afternoon with a, uh, a short introduction, his own introductory statements, and then we'll move on to the other panelists as well. So again, thank you for coming. And uh, Mike, uh, please take it away. Okay, good morning. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be part of this panel. Uh, the one thing we saw when ISIS moved into Mosul June 12th, as we saw the Iraqi security forces dissolve away. We saw ISIS take advantage of a permissive environment where there was an oppressed, uh, disenfranchised uh, Shia uh, Sunni population in Mosul and an oppressive Shia government in charge of, this, in charge of Iraq. Uh, one of the, the reasons ISIS was able to come in, as we all have heard over the last uh, four months or so, is that it was a concerted effort to politicize the Iraqi security forces by putting Maliki loyalists in key positions in the 2nd Iraqi Army Division and also the 3rd Iraqi Army Division. You got rid of competent Kurdish commanders who knew Mosul very well, competent Sunni commanders who knew Mosul very well. That same uh, security apparatus that was in place during the surge was able to deny al-Qaeda territory in Mosul, as well as the Tigris and Euphrates River Valleys with the Sons of Iraq program. Maliki dismantled that, taking 90,000 vetted Sunnis out of the security apparatus he replaced commanders in the, in the Iraqi army in the north, allowing a permissive environment. What ISIS was able to do was take advantage of temporary alliances with nationalist insurgent groups, Sunni Ba'athist insurgent groups, and go move into territory. Uh, the one thing that we started doing with the U.S. policy is we, we immediately started spinning up advisory groups to go to Baghdad, to go to Erbil, and go to these operation centers to partner with the Iraqi security forces. One of the things General Petraeus cautioned was we do not want to look like the Air Force for the Iraqi security forces when it's considered a sectarian, Iran-backed Shia security apparatus. Um, so we went into these operation centers. Uh, and some of the things some of us who have worked with the Iraqis and been in these operation centers noticed uh, or cautioned against was uh, when you put American advisors in these operation centers, even if they know Arabic, they're not familiar with all the nuances in Arabic. And the Shia officers there already have militia ties. And there are already Quds Force officers in the operation centers. So these target packets were going to get primacy. And if we were actioning these target packets, we could be complicit in indiscriminate targeting of Sunni population centers. 
So the one good thing is the majority of the targets that have been successful in Mosul were generated out of Erbil with vetted Kurdish intel and also with vetted Sunni intel from the previous uh, now dismantled uh, Iraqi National Security Service, which was stood up with former Ba'athist Sunni intelligence officers that actually wanted to go after al-Qaeda, that actually wanted to go after Shia militias. That was replaced with, with uh, MSNSA leadership. They basically took over this structure, and that became uh, something that uh, became part of Maliki's sectarian uh, intelligence and security apparatus. Okay, so that's, that's the current set. U.S. airstrikes in Mosul. Key strategic defeat for ISIS when they lost the Mosul Dam. So the question is always asked, are U.S. airstrikes enough? Well, they can hurt ISIS militarily. They were able to take out ISIS positions in the Mosul Dam, but paired with Peshmerga and Iraqi Special Operations Forces as they moved into the area, they were able to take back territory. That was the first strategic loss that ISIS had suffered in, in Iraq and Syria. In Iraq, that was huge. They lost the Mosul Dam. They wanted to be able to provide services. The Mosul Dam provides water and also electricity to the people who live in northern Iraq. They wanted to be able to show that they had a, a better capability to provide services than the Iraqi government. That was taken away from them. They also lost two oil fields. Part of the U.S. strategy now, we need to be able to exploit those information operations uh, opportunities. When ISIS loses key infrastructure, we need to be able to say that. One of the things that happened with the U.S. airstrikes, uh, we, before that we saw U.S. captured equipment move to Syria because they would face a lesser uh, Air Force capability by the Assad regime. Key leaders after U.S. airstrikes started and took away the Mosul Dam started moving back to Syria as well, also to the sectarian fault lines in Baghdad and along the Baghdad belts. What was left behind were foreign fighters. Now, these foreign fighters, another opportunity to exploit uh, ISIS, who actually comprises ISIS. These foreign fighters, a lot of them come in, came in wanting to fight Assad, and they were moved to Iraq to do these things. So you have to remember what Mosul is. If you look, do back-of-the-envelope math, there's 750,000 Sunni military-age males in Mosul that are waiting to see what the central government's going to do, waiting to see what we're going to do. And any time ISIS has a public demonstration, there are always ISIS guards with AK-47s watching the crowd. They're worried about what this Sunni male population in Mosul is going to do. They don't subscribe to the ideology, but they're not going to kill it without some sort of concession from the central government. They're not going to do it without getting something for it. So anything that we do as part of a U.S. strategy has to put pressure on a body to fill the ranks of the two divisions that fell, Mosul and Talafar, the second and third Iraqi army divisions, and put in 30,000 vetted Sunnis that were already part of the ISF in the past and make them fill the ranks. And then that's where the U.S. advisory effort needs to be because we need to be the third-party guarantor. The, the reason the Sons of Iraq were successful and the reason Sunni Iraqi security forces were successful in the past is they had a U.S. advisor with them, and they were able to call in U.S. air, air power, close air support, and be able to do these things. We can't just simply say, fill the ranks with Sunnis because they're not going to trust the central government, and they'll think they're going to off-ramp off them at some point. So how do you get a body to do that? Well, you got to put pressure on Iran to get a body to allow, a body might want to do it now. The Iranians don't want him to do it. I think this is a fight the Iranians and the Shia militias want, especially the one in Baghdad along the sectarian fault lines. But I think I've gone over my time here. I'll go ahead and No, that's terrific. Thanks. I'm just taking notes on oh, some sure, of the stuff yeah. that I, I want to come back to later. It's really great. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, Hussein and I, uh, Hussein Abdul Hussein and I co-authored uh, an article in the Weekly Standard about a month ago, and I have to say, 
was saying did all of the heavy lifting. I just added my name on there to get some credit for what I think is a really interesting article <laughs> about um, about the origins of ISIS and who is a part of the uh, who is a part of this and what this larger rebellion looks like. And I think that Hussein is going to start uh, start today by talking about that somewhat. Thanks. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for having me. Um, on September 16, um, uh, General Martin Dempsey uh, told the Armed Services Committee in the Senate uh, that uh, the basic or one of the most important factor, uh, f factors in this strategy of uh, uh, defeating ISIS is to get some moderate Sunni tribes to, uh, to join the coalition against ISIS. Um, on October 5, 23 new clans in Iraq and Syria uh, pledged allegiance to ISIS, um, which uh, tells us that uh, the, the tribes so far do not seem to be betting on the United States or on, on its allies. Um, then, since then, uh, we've seen uh, so many reports and we've seen so much criticism um, against uh, the Syrian opposition, against the tribes. We, uh, we call them uh, corrupt. We think they're not up to the fight. They've been losing all the time. So the question is, um, how come uh, all the tribes who fight on our side are the losers and all the tribes who fight on Iran and Hezbollah's sides are always the winners? I mean, you know, we spent so many years training the Iraqi army and they melt down in a couple of hours in Mosul. And here you have a ragtag army uh, with ISIS just fighting and winning. And it took us two weeks to take the Mosul Dam with the U.S. air power to take the Mosul Dam out of the hands of ISIS. Um, the answer to, the, to this question is that we do not pick the tribes. They pick us. And this is very important because this goes back to how the, the tribes behave uh, there's a the, there's a tribal code and a tribal structure uh, a tribe is usually uh, known by name and by genealogy and and even the horses have genealogies uh, they're known for uh, their their territory is usually uh, uh, mar demarcated it's called dira in, in Arabic so the tribes are not as ambiguous as they seem to be there are blue-blooded tribes. There are uh, 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 lesser, uh, the opposite of blue-blooded, uh, <laughs> junior ranking, second ranking. Um, um, then there are strong tribes, and there are not so strong tribes. Uh, what's happened over the past half century is that uh, both Saddam Hussein in Iraq and Hafiz Assad in Syria, they knew how to deal with these tribes and their tribal areas. Um, and, and the tribal areas that's the northeast of, of Syria and the northwest of Iraq and west and east of, uh, of uh, west of Iraq and east of Syria. Um, these, the, the, they have at least four, four to six big tribal confederations. Uh, the two most important of them, the Shammar and the Aneza, these are very well connected to the Saudis. Uh, to put this in perspective, uh, the Saudi royal family Al Saud comes from Aneza. The mother of the current Saudi king, King Abdullah, his mother Fahda comes from Shammar. So uh, these tribes are connected to Saudi Arabia. Um, they, they have intermarriage. And because of this, they were under pressure during the Assad days, the father, during the days of Saddam Hussein. Both Saddam Hussein and, and Hafiz Assad propped up the, the junior ranking 
uh, uh, tribes. Of these junior-ranking tribes, I can cite maybe the Sharabin in, uh, in Raqqa in, in northeastern Syria, uh, the Juhaysh in the Mosul area. And these junior tribes were doing really good at the expense of the blue-blooded, the Shamar and the Aneza. And by the way, uh, uh, Osama bin Laden's mother hails from Sharabin. So just to put this in perspective, so we have uh, the mothers of, of various Saudi factions <laughs> coming from various tribes in, uh, in Syria. Uh, uh, so Asharabin were doing uh, really well, and uh, Asharabin holds uh, areas like in the province of Raqqa. Now, uh, how Raqqa changed hands from uh, from Assad to the rebels is really interesting. Uh, the Syrian revolution broke out uh, on March 15, uh, 2011, uh, and most of the north and the northeast, the Assad just lost control really fast. The only uh, town and and most and the province that kept holding and and was still loyal to Assad was Raqqa, and it remained loyal to Assad until November of of 2013. That's that's almost two years. Even though Raqqa is first of all the town of Raqqa is 300 miles away from Damascus. That's that's almost a six-hour drive. It means that it was thinly. Uh, uh, populated with, with Assad security forces. It meant that the Assad elite forces could not go and defend because of it's a long distance, uh, the, the logistics would be hard, supply lines would be uh, thinly stretched. So uh, all these two years, Raqqa remained loyal to Assad because of, of the tribes who, still, who were still loyal to Assad. Then on November 2nd, 2013, all of a sudden, 14 clans from different tribes pledged allegiance to ISIS. And since then, Raqqa has become the capital of ISIS. Now, uh, and, 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 and this, this change of Raqqa was, was nearly bloodless. The, the, the tribal forces known as the Hajana in that part just switched from being pro-Assad to being pro-ISIS. And this tells us that uh, there's no such thing as moderate Sunni tribe or radical Sunni tribe. The tribes are not moderate or radical. And, and when the tribes pledge allegiance to ISIS, that's very different from from individuals joining ISIS. Individuals join uh, based on ideology, uh, based on a direct salary that they receive from, from, from whichever group. The tribes join for different reasons. The tribes hedge and they look for the strongest power. And when the tribes of Raqqa thought that Assad was going to fall, they changed. And then the only strong power they, they, that they found was, was ISIS, of course, because we were calling them carpenters, teachers, and dentists, and we were withholding all the kinds of arms. So the only strong power that they could join at the time was ISIS. So this is how these tribes became ISIS. And, this, and, and by the same token, the tribes mainly of Al-Juhaysh and Al-Dulaym and Al-Zubayd, uh, the Arab Jbur, these tribes in the northwest of Iraq joined ISIS as well. Uh, of the of the six people who form the military council of ISIS, Al Baghdadi being one of them, five of them come from big tribes, mainly uh, Abu Fatma Juhaishi, who's of course a Juhaish, and the Zubaydis, and three of them were high-ranking officers in Saddam's army. So now you get a picture of who these people are, how these tribes are fighting on the other side. One last note before I, I, I close. Um, these, the reason why these tribes 
that the United States got a, a big chance with the tribes of Iraq, Syria, and even Lebanon in 06 and 07, 05, 06, and 07. The tribes thought that we were really serious in spreading democracy and, and giving arms and money. Uh, we saw uh, Lebanon, uh, the Druze, the Sunnis joined democracy. They ejected Assad out of Syria. That was a preview of how the tribes treated Assad in Syria five years, five years later. The Sahwat in, in Iraq joined the United States uh, and they fought alongside U.S. troops. They ejected Al-Qaeda from there. What's, hap what's happened after that was very in interesting. We got uh, disengaged and um, the National Security Advisor to President, to Vice President Joe Biden, Anthony Blinken, was handling this. Um, he, at the time, he reasoned that what's more important is for uh, Prime Minister Maliki to keep pumping oil uh, to, uh, to edge Iran out of the oil market. Of course, this confirmed all kinds of conspiracy theories that were there for the oil. And the, uh, the tribes thought, okay, America is not serious. They came, they left. We need a power that's here to stay. And that'd be either Iran or ISIS. And I don't think the tribes will be joining us anytime soon. Or if the ones, or the ones that will join will not be the stronger ones. Thank you. Thanks, Hussein. That's a very depressing assessment. Uh, thanks very much. That was, that was really informative and terrific. Um, the next speaker is uh, Andrew Taylor. Andrew is a uh, very old friend and colleague and also uh, one of the premier, if not the premier Syria expert um, here in Washington and in the United States. And that's one of the things that Andrew will be touching on Syria as well as some other things, uh, including the administration's uh, larger vision of ISIS and the Levant. We might not get to all of that in the introductory statements, but we'll come back around to that later. Andrew? Um, Lee, thanks for that introduction. It's an honor for me to be up here with, um, with you all today, and thanks for, thanks for attending. Um, I see a number of friends in the audience as well. Um, so in terms of the administration's strategy itself to deal with ISIS, uh, as well as how this applies to um, both Iraq and to Syria, the strategy generally is an Iraq-centric approach. Okay? Uh, the inkblot, so to speak, starts there. And, um, and what I, the reason why I use the inkblot analogy isn't just because of the uh, different parallels with the Sahwa and the surge in, in, in Iraq during the war, but also just the dealing with what is the, what, what, is, what ISIS calls the Islamic State, um, this sort of massive territory between, uh, that, that encompasses a lot of the Euphrates uh, Valley. In, the US, in, in Iraq, you have a military campaign, which involves airstrikes, of course. Um, as well as um, arming of certain factions inside um, uh, of Iraq, and U.S. support to try and rescue certain minorities, in particular, uh, throughout the country. And these gentlemen to my left can explain this a lot better than I can. Um, that's combined with a overall political strategy um, in, in that you want to try and get, they're aiming to get, a more inclusive Iraqi government that's more permissible um, and, is, and that can entice some of the tribes and others uh, particularly from the Sunni population, which makes up the base of ISIS, back into the Iraqi government so that it functions, okay, again. Um, and in this particular case, in, in the case of Iraq, I'm not surprised that the administration is starting there. The U.S. has a lot of experience there. Uh, and while there have been a lot of problems over the last few years, the Iraqi system, at least you have the hope of some change. It might not be real change. It might not be change as fast as we would like. But you have the hope of some change. Prime ministers there can, can, can come and go. Um, their parties might not come and go. 
But uh, certain figures can. Certain fixed positions can change. And it's easy for Americans, easier for Americans to relate to. Um, and it's because of that that I think you've seen the administration's emphasis on, the, on, on Iraq, both from experience and possibilities there. In Syria, it is a completely different situation. Um, US, in, um, U.S. action against ISIS, as far as I can tell, does not, is not part of any kind of strategy other than to degrade ISIS overall. There are some caveats to this. Um, for example, um, trying to hit uh, ISIS uh, p political and military facilities. So to degrade its power primarily in Iraq. Um, also to hit some of the rudimentary oil refineries, which have been set up in the Khabur River Valley and also in the Euphrates River Valley. And that's logical. Uh, ISIS sells refined products, crude oil, to sustain part of its operations. Um, and that's, that's, quite, that's quite smart. Um, and, but in terms of the overall strikes, um, the administration is in a bit of a bind um, particularly when ISIS is advancing, like around Kobane, um, you saw an uptick in strikes in the, over the last week. That's largely a reactive policy. Um, but the overall problem in Syria is you don't have a hope of a political process. There isn't one, okay? And the reason why there isn't one is because the war in Syria um, uh, as, has, has hardened up positions among the different parties on the regime side as well as on the opposition side and made a political outcome there really a remote possibility at best. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, that's part of the problem that the Obama administration in intervening in Syria is trying to intervene so it doesn't tip the balance one way or the other, right? Of course, the United States has a stated policy that President Assad should step aside since August of 2011. Uh, and a whole slew of legal sanctions that go along with it that, has been, that have been supported by uh, not only the uh, members of the bureaucracy and uh, former, uh, very prominent former members of the administration, um, but also uh, on Capitol Hill. But over the course of this, uh, uh, the uh, Syria crisis, um, actually achieving that objective um, has meant increased U.S. involvement that the president himself is unwilling to put forward. Basically, the president has been on the horns of a dilemma for about a year, and, and, and this dilemma is largely as follows. Either the United States increases its effort with its allies to get rid of the Assad regime, okay, and there are a lot of ways you can get rid of the Assad regime. It depends on how, but generally that's, that's what we're looking at here. That would allow for some kind of process, a transition that would fold, that they could fold the opposition into and bring the country back together again. Um, and the, the other part of this dilemma is just letting things go as they are and acquiescing to what are called ceasefires. And they're ceasefires with a small c. It involves the Assad regime surrounding areas, major cities inside of their country and villages. They starve the people out, cut off water, drop barrel bombs, um, and then they leave a little sliver of territory in the end for the fighters to run out while the regime then moves in. Um, activists are arrested and tortured, sometimes to death. Um, and, uh, and, and this ceasefire model was held out um, as the way the regime was going to come back a little bit earlier this year. So you had two tracks. One, peace talks in Geneva, which went nowhere. 
and then you had the ceasefire model. And a lot of people in the bureaucracy were betting on the ceasefire model privately. Um, they thought the regime had the wind in its sails. Um, and it also was a little bit easier and more coherent, they thought, to deal with. And that's because, we have to be honest about this, the members of the Syrian opposition also have tremendous faults and tremendous divisions that makes working with them very, very complicated. Okay? And the, the, the overall problem has been that, um, that the, the nature of the Syrian battlefield and that everyone is battling against uh, President Assad, but they generally are not, um, the, the groups have not consolidated, their elites have, their elites have not consolidated, so therefore you have Al-Qaeda affiliates fighting alongside nationalist battalions. And they do this on a regular basis. They're doing it right now in southern Syria. And when they do it, when they work towards a common purpose, they're very effective. And they're pushing the Assad regime back, actually right now, towards, uh, towards Damascus. The problem, of course, in that is how do you support such a chaotic um, and unorganized space? It's not impossible. But it's difficult in that any arms or anything that's introduced into that environment could fall into the hands of al-Qaeda affiliates. And that would be bad. Okay? Not only bad in a general sense, but really bad in a legal sense. And no politician wants to touch it, including the president. <clears throat> so he was betting on Assad coming back and kind of carving out as much territory as possible. Eventually the rebels would give up, and then there would be some kind of lame political process at the end of this to, uh, to call it uh, a reconstituted country. That formula changed with the ISIS outbreak in June, fundamentally changed. And so now the problem that we have is that the, um, the, the Assad regime is incredibly weakened. There are a lot of problems internally, and they're losing ground, particularly in the south, but other areas of the country. They've been trying to retake the largest city, Aleppo. They might try and encircle it, but their ability, the problem with the regime is it can go out and retake areas, but it can't hold them. And this is something that goes way back to the beginning of the, uh, of the uprising. And this, this means that not only are they not able to consolidate power in the West where they're strongest, they're not going to be able to go out into the Euphrates Valley and clean up ISIS. So then the question is, well, what can fill up that vacuum and take into account Sunni aspirations in the Euphrates Valley where Sunnis are in the majority? And it's there that... Um, that right now um, we're starting from basically zero. The U.S. has had a covert campaign uh, to support the Syrian opposition in the country for about a year and a half. We deal with about nine groups there, if not more, um, and they're supplied with weapons, including tow anti-tank anti weapons on a regular basis. Um, but in an overall political sense, they are not organized. They're not organized towards one end. And that Title 50 program, a covert program, will be folded into the train and equip program, the Title 10 program that has been announced. But in the meantime, we are striking these targets and ISIS is not giving way and we don't really have an opposition force to fill up that vacuum. So it's in that chaotic situation that we will probably see the Assad regime try and lash out to retake some areas, likely see them, to see them fail, as well as tribes in the Euphrates Valley itself try and assert themselves. But in order to retake that, I don't think that you're going to have one force retaking and holding those areas in any kind of coherent way. At this point, if we keep on going in the, in the direction that we're going in terms of our Syria, our approach to Syria, um, 
I'm afraid that boots on the ground are probably a much more likely possibility going forward, both in the next two years as well as for the next administration. Because I don't see one side or the other being able to really clean up this problem once ISIS is degraded from the air. And I think that's going to be the main problem that this administration faces on the way out and the next administration faces on the way in. And on that, I'll end. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. That's terrific. Um, uh, well, that's a, a terrific introduction. I want to be able to want to be able to come back later to some specific issues like uh, the um, fight between ISIS and the Kurds in Kobani. But first, what I'd like to do is I just want to fill out um, I want to fill out the more general picture, which I think is going to be very helpful here. One of the things that the, I believe that the three panelists are saying, um, or this is how I would like to put it together, say I believe that ISIS is part of a larger Sunni rebellion which is the function, of, the function of the policies of the Maliki government, uh, the function of the policies of Bashar al-Assad's war, um, and also standing behind that is the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, so the Iranians have forces on the ground. Uh, the United States, after the 2001 withdrawal, has <clears throat> much more, is much more limited. Uh, as much more limited, limited leverage. What I'd like to fill out now is I'd just like to get a sense of like, what are the chances that the United States, that the administration can now address that issue, which I think we all agree on that one of the fundamental problems that's going on is here. How do we get the Sunnis to buy in? Uh, whether it's the Sunni tribes, whether it's different, uh, whether it's the Sunnis that Mike was speaking about in Mosul, how do we get the Sunnis to buy in without much leverage on the ground. So I, I'm actually going to ask um, Mike to, to try that first. Okay. We lost a lot of leverage with the Sunni population when we assured them that the Sons of Iraq program would turn into jobs in the Iraqi security forces and other jobs within the ministries. That didn't happen. Uh, a, a good friend of mine, P.J. Dermer, who actually recruited a lot of these individuals, was often met with, with hugs and kisses when he saw these guys in Amman, Jordan. The last time he met them, he had one of the individuals grab all of the unit coins out of his pocket from other Iraqi uh, U.S. Army battalions that they had worked with over the years and threw them at his feet and said, what good are these? These are all broken promises. So we have to reestablish that leverage, but how do we do that when we're not projecting that we're there, we're not taking Vienna, we're not doing it 100%. We're simply you know, doing airstrikes at night or against targets of opportunity as opposed to having a concerted effort to, at this point, you know, you're not going to take Mosul with Peshmerga and U.S. airstrikes. You have to take Mosul with the Sunnis that are in Mosul. But how do you, how do you get them, how, do the, how does the U.S. get them to fight? Absent a protracted commitment without an end date, you're not going to. Um, the Iraqi government is there's so much Iranian influence in the Iraqi government right now. I, I don't know if a lot of you know this, but the Iraqi security forces went from 55% Shia, 45% Sunni, to 95 or greater percent Shia in the last four years. All the militias have been deputized. They are now part of the Iraqi security forces. Shia militias are now part of these National Guard regional uh, units that were supposed to stand up and fight Al or, I'm sorry, ISIS. The problem is, is these militias don't don't uh, differentiate between a Sunni military-age male and the insurgency. And ISIS is counting on that. So as they push into Baghdad and the Baghdad belts, they're fomenting a violent response from the Shia militias, who are now legitimate 
Iraqi security forces. So as the 6th Iraqi Army Division, the 9th Iraqi Army Division, the 1st Iraqi Army Division try to reinforce the 7th Iraqi Army Division, which is primarily Sunni in Al-Anbar, there's no trust there. And the Sunni military is falling, and that just uh, legitimizes Baghdad's concerns that, hey, we can't trust the Sunnis in the Iraqi security forces. They will not fight these guys. If, if I can ask you, you yeah. uh, we, we spoke before about the, um, the appointment of General Allen. So does that, uh, does that augur positive things for American policy and, and this Iraq and vis-a-vis ISIS? Or what right, do you think? The selection of General Allen. I mean, the Ambaris were, were begging him to come back, to, to, to restart, to help to restart the awakening, because he's a credible figure. The same with Petraeus, General Petraeus. You could hear cries of Allahu Akbar and Al-Anbar, but they weren't from ISIS. <laughs> they were from the Sunnis, the very Sunnis that we need to fight ISIS. That was until you started seeing some of the powers. Initially, General Allen was going to be the guy in charge of this. It was a kinetic line of operation. There was a curbing foreign fighter flow line of operation, uh, stemming, um, uh, what is it called, threat finance. And there was the coalition building, where we t- say to coalition partners, you don't have to provide airstrikes or boots on the ground, but give us the intel. Stop the foreign fighter flow from Turkey and your other countries. You have 2,500 guys coming from Tunisia, 2,500 guys coming from Saudi Arabia, and 1,800 guys coming from Morocco that are able to come in through Turkey into the fight, and, and, and that's a problem. So there's, there are things coalition partners can do, but General Allen is the right guy to, to do this. He just needs to be empowered to do it. Empowered how? I'm sorry to keep pushing. No, no, authorized. Uh, you know, we have a cadre of American military that would be willing to go back right now if asked. Um, we have, I mean, General Allen was asked by the tribes. Maliki asked Petraeus, hey, come back. I'll do whatever you want. But the administration did not allow either one of those gentlemen to go forward and do this. And you can't do it. You've got to be sanctioned by the U.S. government to do it, to be effective. So with General Allen being in charge of this and the cadre that he could put together, you have – relationships that we've established over the years with the Iraqis, Sunnis, Shia nationalists, uh, Peshmerga, and other, other groups in the Iraqi government that actually want to see Iraq stay together, that want to see everybody be part of this, this process. One of the things we, we say is, uh, you know, we need to do the same thing ISIS did. They established temporary alliances to take Mosul. We need to do the same thing to take territory away from ISIS. Um, if you have five guys in the room that hate each other, if there's a snake going across the stage, we're going to kill the snake first, and then we can go back to hating each other. You know, you got to do that afterwards. And then maybe if we both kill the snake together, we'll sort of say, okay, maybe you're not as bad as I thought you were. But we need to, we need to do things like that. The problem is, is that we, we say things that resonate in the, in the Sunni population centers as saying the end date is two months away. There's going to be something from the administration that's going to say airstrikes will end on this date. And as soon as that happens, you're not going to get Sunni buy-in to do anything difficult. And absent putting pressure on Iran to get a body to absorb Sunnis in the security apparatus, it's not going to happen. And then again, the Sunnis, why would they trust a body right. in the first place? Well, I want to come back later to the idea of putting pressure on Iran okay. uh, regarding ISIS, which seems to be something that uh, the opposite is happening. Um, but in the meantime, Hussein, I wanted to – you ended your introductory statements uh, very, uh, very uh, depressed – <laughs> Not optimistically. But I want to say, what would it look like? How could the United States put enough people in a room to kill the snake? What would that look like regarding the tribes? You say it's unlikely, but what would have to happen? Uh, American military leadership and political leadership as well. You expressed uh, at the least skepticism regarding Anthony Blinken. 
Yeah, well, I first of all, I completely agree with what Michael said. And, and I'll try to give it the tribal dimension. Um, first with an anecdote from uh, 1261. <laughs> in in <laughs> 1258, uh, Hulagu and the Mongols swept the region. They took Baghdad. They kept on uh, sweeping through. And they reached a point in the Levant, a town called Ain Jalut. And this town is, is a Druze area. And, 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 and there he met uh, an army of, of the Mamluks. And, uh, and there, was a, there, there would have been a battle. And then the Druze, uh, they tried to pick a winner because, you know, <laughs> they, they were hedging. So they decided to split into two teams and to fight on each side. And whoever wins will redeem the loser. <laughs> so this is how tribes act. They, they need to work with winners. This is very important for them. And Walid Jumblat in 2006 told David Ignatius of the Washington Post that, that that time was the time when the Air Berlin Wall had fallen. And, and Walid Jumblat said he was ready to join the U.S. Uh, campaign to spread democracy. And then a year after that, when the Hezbollah fighters swept through his areas and that of the Sunnis of Saad Hariri, uh, Saad Hariri called him and he said, I have confirmed news from Washington that the Americans are coming to our rescue. And then Walid Jumblad said, are you crazy? We will swim from, from here to the destroyers, to the American destroyers. <laughs> so, so Walid Jumblad learned that you can't bet on the United States. And, and this is the same lesson that the Sahwat learned. And, and the, when, when Michael says that they, they, they shout Allahu Akbar when they see General Allen, this is because in the tribal mindset, the, the, the personal is very important. And I know that we're a democracy, we can't keep on sending the same people all the time, they have to change. But we have to, to understand, we have to learn from the mistakes. We sent Antony Blinken, who handed the Sahwat, to Maliki, to the Shia rival, and to Iran. And then, you know, uh, Maliki just uh, cut the salaries, he cut the, the, the arming, and then the Sahwat were on their own. And yesterday, the White House put out a press release saying, we're sending Antony Blinken, again. To, to the people who do not trust him anyway. So I completely agree. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not saying we should just send the, the, all the old team, but to win the tribes over, we have to prove that the U.S. and the coalition is the winning side and they have an interest in joining it and, and they can trust the United States and then th this would be a long term. They will not fight if this is uh, something about a short-term two-year thing, taking on ISIS and degrading capability. They will not fight if this is only for the sake of the United States. They will not fight if this is counterterrorism only. They will fight if this means beating the other tribe that has been beating them since year 200 BCE. Th that's how the tribes fight. And, and by the way, most of the fighting that you see now in Kobani between the, the, the tribes and, or ISIS now, we call them ISIS, between ISIS and, and the Kurds, this predates ISIS and predates the Syrian revolution. And these guys, mm. they, they, there has been tension all the time. I think you know this, Michael, in Mosul and Kirkuk, the, the fault line between the Kurds and the Sunni Arabs has been there since even before Saddam and the Iraqi state. So the, we have to take these things into consideration and we have to entertain these tribes. We have, we have to get some allies and we have to treat them the way Iran treats its allies. You know, if you, if you are a member of Hezbollah, and you joined Hezbollah and it was founded in 1982, the odds are now you're sitting in Beirut and you're getting Hezbollah social security paychecks, right? <laughs> I mean, it's such a long-term thing that they do. 
Everyone who's joined Hezbollah in 82 is probably still fighting and now they're fighting in Syria. Everyone who's, who's, who joined Sahwat is, is either on the run from some Shia policeman or from, you know, or they don't have money or, you know, they're, they're trying to get some support from ISIS or from whoever. Um, let me just, I mean, let me just ask quickly, without, the, without getting the tribes on side, what are the odds of success against, and again, I guess there's two different ways to put it, like what are the odds of success in defeating ISIS, and what are the odds of success in quelling a Sunni rebellion, letting the Sunnis know that in spite of the, uh, in spite of tossing over Saddam Hussein, that the Sunnis are still a part of Iraq. So what are the chances of either? Well, uh, so far ISIS has, has been uh, in the tribal areas. They haven't had any uh, big wins except for Mosul. And over there, it's, it's mostly, I mean, it, it has two million people, but many of them are still tribal. So uh, we're talking about tribal area. So the tribal would be, you know, uh, the instrumental fighting force in that part. Um, to defeat ISIS, I'd say we have to get uh, the tribes that are still out of ISIS, uh, for example, the Agedat, uh, uh, who are uh, one of the strong uh, tribes who are pro-Assad, and you might know one of them, the ambassador, the Syrian ambassador in Iraq who defected, Nawaf al-Faris, oh. he's from the Agedat. They defected early on, and they wanted to join the Free Syrian Army and the opposition and to fight, and they're a potent force, and they know how to fight, uh, except that, like I said, we call them carpenters and right. you know, no arms or radicals or whatever. Now, in July, by the way, when ISIS was expanding and winning uh, and winning pledges of allegiance from other tribes, uh, they, in, in three hours, in Deir Zor, uh, in eastern of Syria, they killed 800 men from uh, Shaitat, which is part of Agedat. So these are the, the guys who are trying to join us, and, and they were dying. So what we have to show is we, we have to show resolve long term, and then you will see the tribes, and of course, funds and money, and then you will see the tribes coming to our side, and then you know you can use them maybe in combination with the U.S. air power and and beat ISIS in, in their areas. Andrew, that's a good transition into Andrew because I, I did want to pick it up in Syria, especially the background. How do you earn the trust of the tribes? How do you earn the trust of uh, any Iraqi Sunnis if people would look to Syria and they would say this administration has uh, has sat on its hands while more than two hundred thousand. Uh, Arab Sunnis have been slaughtered. They jumped to defend Yazidis, mm -hmm. Christians, uh, and Kurds. However, when the Sunnis, Sunni lives seem to matter nothing at all. I mm -hmm. mean, and as Hussein keeps saying, the administration has kept insulting, insulting the FSA, saying they're doctors, or pharmacists, or carpenters. How do you get, if you're looking at Syria, and the administration's policy has been to uh, not intervene in the war, how do you get the Sunnis in Syria or Iraq, anywhere around the region, to buy in? Hmm? Um, I can think of a couple ways. Uh, one would be to, to um, first of all, you know, I think it's very important for the administration to realize it's in a hole in this regard and to stop, and to stop digging. And what I mean is, uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be flippant, no, no, but, no, no, no. but it, it, we have to understand that the non-strike incident of uh, September 2013, that's what it's called in the government, um, that uh, got about 96%, 95% of the declared stockpile of CW out of Syria, not all of it. Um, um, that's a good thing, but that came at a tremendous political price for our relations with, I think, our relations with the, um, and our reputation in the entire world. Um, 
and that's a larger that's larger uh, than this discussion. But it also sent a terrible message to the Sunnis inside of Syria. Now, why is this a problem? Because Syria is 75% Sunni. See, it, it's a little easier to do this wink and nod stuff when the minority and when when the number of Sunnis inside of a country like Iraq is not is is smaller. Right? It's a little easier to do. You can pick them off. You can probably divide them. In the case of Syria, you need to have a political and military program. The Sunnis inside of Syria would like a replacement to the minority-dominated Assad regime. They're, uh, it's an Alawite-dominated regime. It's a Shia offshoot supported by Iran. Um, they'd like to have any kind of transition away from it. And I think that's one thing that we can help them with. And we have a stated policy to go in that direction anyway. Until now, uh, they haven't seen it. Second would be... Um, in order to achieve that, both uh, tactically, strategically, and in terms of cost, because that's a big consideration for the United States is cost. I understand that. Um, is you have to get the Sunni uh, powers in the region on side to finance this operation, which they say they've been willing to do. Um, and uh, but the problem is that unlike our Iranian uh, adversaries, the Iran Iran has a Quds force. And they're very good at what the president calls the proxy game. They are. They're very good at it. And our Sunni uh, allies in the region uh, are not, except for the jihadists. And so from a state-centric point of view, it's very hard to get all of those different Sunni powers to work together towards that common end. And they want the United States to step in, essentially, to be that arbiter, you know, to sort of point things in that direction. And they'll be willing to finance it. And until now, the president has said, no way. Now, again, that strategy would make sense in terms of both ending the war in Syria and eliminating ISIS. The president's strategy would make more sense if the number of Sunnis inside of Syria were much smaller, like 25% of the population. But it's not. It's a huge amount. And we haven't been able to find that alternative. We have to find that alternative that takes into consideration Sunni aspirations so that they don't join jihadists on a tactical level or a strategic level as these two gentlemen have outlined, and that then also don't hold animosities against the United States and carry out terrorist attacks. So that means don't, you know, not, not only helping in this overall fight in, in terms of inside of Syria, but not putting the country in a situation where it, enforce, it lays down a red line and then doesn't enforce it. That's going to lose American power and a perception of power all over the world, it's gonna, and it costs us tremendously among the Syrian opposition, and sent many more people over, Syrians over to the jihadists because they were seen as, not to steal a line from Lee's book, the strong horse. And the, the way to solve this at the moment, it's very simple, okay? The reason why the president takes the approach he does is because it goes back to where, when he was elected, okay? He was a reaction to what was perceived by the American people and those in the region as American aggression in the region, okay? And this is well known. It's not, this is not controversial at all. And there was a political fallout to that. Right? And he was elected. And because over time, what's happened is we've seen that it's passivity overall. It's throwing your hands up in the air and saying we can't do anything. What's required at the moment is a smart policy based on something that Americans do very well. It's called assertiveness. It means working with allies in a smart way and in, in, in creative ways using their resources to defeat a common foe. 
We've been doing this for years, and this is what's required to truly defeat ISIS. If we don't do it now, we will not defeat ISIS not only during this administration, but it will become even harder during the next administration. Thanks, Andrew. That's great. Um, One of the things that it reminds me of, and there's a lot of talk all the time in the region about moderates and extremists. I'm saying this is one of the things that you were talking about in terms of in terms of the tribes. I want to come back to that. Uh, one of the things that strikes me is whenever the administration, and it's not just this administration, the Bush administration did the same, we want to encourage uh, the position of moderates and for moderates to stand up against extremists. However, as Hussein has also outlined, and as Mike has outlined, as everyone has outlined here, the United States has done a terrifically bad job of backing moderates in the field. To back moderates rhetorically is one thing, but then to let the extremists, the nuts, come in, and whether that's ISIS or whether the the Islamic Republic of Iran and Hezbollah, these are big issues to really put your money where your mouth is. And I think this is one of the things that we're getting at. This has not been happening. I want to come back to, for a second, I want to come back to Kobani, uh, when one of the things you were talking about, Hussein, you were saying that this this uh, divide pre, uh, pre-exist ISIS. I want you to talk about that for a second. And then, actually, Mike, I'm going to ask you to talk about uh, your sense of ISIS's actual military capabilities and, and, and what it takes militarily to, to, to handle them. Hassan, if you could. Sure. Uh, uh, well, in, in Kobani, what we know is that uh, one of the ways that Assad kept tabs on the Kurds was to use these same tribes uh, to uh, not sort of beat them, but the animosity between these two of course, the animosity uh, started in times uh, in ancient times over maybe cattle or or that river or you know these uh, mundane mm. things. But we know that you know there's a line between these two, and uh, Assad used these tribes to beat these Kurds repeatedly. And when when there was when uh, when the Assad uh, power was was on the decline in that part of Syria, uh, then the Kurds did not pick up arms against Assad, by the way, the, the ones in Kobani and the ones in mm. Hazakia, they just tried to stay out of, of this whole thing. And now the offensive that you see from these ISIS fighters, uh, Sunni ISIS fighters, is is to an extent not related to to Syria proper. Huh. So, uh, and, and, and this started from the very first day that the Assad's power weakened. There were uh, tension, and the reason why they formed, the reason why the Kurds formed these militias, the, these self-defending militias, they call, they formed them after the revolution, mm. not to fight Assad, just to keep, you know. And by the way, in, in 07, 08, um, the, uh, Assad did the same thing. He armed uh, the tribes in the south against the Druze because Wali Jumlat was agitating the Druze against mm. Assad. So these fault lines predate this. Now, mm. with ISIS, you know, they can uh, pick up the ISIS flag and they can pretend this is, you know, all for ideology. But it's really Sunni Arab tribes. It's, yeah, that it's, are it's, for, it predates uh, the actual, you know, what's what's going on yeah. now. Um, very interesting. Mike, if there's anything you wanted to add about Kobani, but also but I think that is one of the places where we've seen ISIS's military um, capabilities come out. So if, if you want to talk about that for a second. Yes. Uh, with Kobani, I want to go back to the military question. You're talking about okay. ISIS. But uh, with Kobani, one of the things when we started airstrikes in Syria – we were only doing them at nighttime. So ISIS actually developed a, a battle rhythm where they were actually, okay, the U.S. airstrikes are over. Let's move all this equipment towards Kobani. We weren't doing anything during the daytime. Uh, why? Because we didn't want to lose U.S. pilots. We were afraid of Assad's air defense capability. Um, 
That's a problem. We allowed ISIS to move, captured U.S. equipment, captured Syrian equipment in support of the fight in Kobani when they're out in the open. So the airstrikes started happening during the daytime. The problem was all that equipment was already in Kobani. Or they had already moved in Kobani. So now one of the good things about the targeting effort in Kobani is the target packets are generated by Kurds in Erbil. And you've seen Peshmerga move from Iraq into Syria and into Kobani to help fight. <laughs> Uh, rival, Pish, rival Kurdish groups fighting a common enemy, and that's, and that's common here. And that's one of the things I wanted to go back to ISIS military capability. Mm -hmm. We're giving ISIS too much credit for, for a lot of things. Mosul wasn't done primarily with ISIS. It was done with all of the Sunni insurgent groups that didn't like the fact that the military now was Shia, and they were telling Mosulawis what to do, and that their charismatic Sunni leaders were being put in jail because of the account accountability and justice law and the terrorism law. Two laws that have very ambiguous language. If I know you and you know a terrorist, I go to jail because of the affiliation. And it's such an easy way to, to uh, marginalize political opponents and replace effective military commanders. So when Shia militias fight ISIS, remember that's Jaysh al-Mahdi, that's Asab al-Haq, that's Badr Corps, and that's some good forces, right? We can't just give one of those groups credit. But we're doing that with ISIS. Anytime ISIS has successes, we're saying it's just ISIS that's doing it. It's not. They're temporary alliances. And when they have a common enemy, they fight together. And we have to be cautious of giving ISIS way too much credit. Uh, the, the fight in Baghdad, along the, uh, the Baghdad uh, belts, motor attacks on the airport, motor attacks in the IZ, it's not just ISIS. It's these other groups, 1920s Brigade, other, other Jaysh al-Shahadin, uh, other, other units. But the thing is, is that when they have a common enemy, they'll fight together. Absent the threat of Shia militias and Shia Iraqi security forces, anytime ISIS asserts primacy over these groups, they resist. There are schisms, there are opportunities to do things. And a lot of those groups that they fought with, if this was a line, th this is a road, right? At the end of the road is a caliphate. In the middle is a return to Ba'athist power. These groups are going to support ISIS until they get there. After that, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these Ba'athist affiliated groups or nationalist groups turn on ISIS. Mm. Turn on it. They don't want a caliphate in Iraq. They want to return to Ba'athist power. The thing about partition, just real quick, sure. Sunnis want the whole country back. The Shia are happy with the current set as long as Kirkuk remains in somewhat a special status. And they're actually happy it fell into responsible hands with the Kurds. The Kurds want Kirkuk and the KRG area. They don't want it all. The Shia are happy with what they have. The Kurds are happy with what they have right now. Sunnis want it all. And that's the issue, is this is a Sunni rebellion. But there are factions within the Sunni rebellion that simply want buy-in. They want legitimacy. They want to be part of Iraq's future. And they want to return to legitimate positions in government where they're able to actually uh, hold sway over what's being done and defend against an external threat, that being Iran. Hussein, I'm going to come back just, to Andrew in a second as I have a question for him. Uh, but I, but I, Hussein wanted to yes, say something. Yes, just to, here, so, yeah. to add quickly, um, uh, the, this explains why Turkey has been behaving the way it's been behaving. Right. Because the conflict predates all the ISIS counterterrorism thing. You know, and, and the Turks th thought, okay, you know, uh, the, the YPG is on our terrorism list. Uh, these tribes, we have no interest in confronting. Can you just right pull on. this out? Who YPG is? Can you explain? Uh, they, they're they're the, the the group that's fighting uh, that's uh, uh, that belongs to the PKK, which is a Kurdish 
insurgent group that has been fighting Turkey since the 1980s, and the Turks consider them as terrorists. And now the America's terrorists are fighting Turkey's terrorists, <laughs> and we asked mm -hmm. them to join us in fighting only America's terrorists, and they said no. You know, to us, these are terrorists as well. Mm -hmm. So instead of, of of striking ISIS, the Turks went on and they were striking the Kurds who are fighting mm -hmm. ISIS. So this becomes complicated, but the reason is it predates the whole situation that we have now. Thanks for saying that's great. Andrew, what, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and then we are going to come back to uh, Iran, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, what right now is the administration's uh, anti-ISIS campaign in Syria? How is that affecting, how is that affecting um, Assad's campaign regarding the FSA, mm -hmm. regarding, the, you know, regarding the rebels? Um, my understanding uh, is that it's opening uh, or giving him room to attack different rebel units now that the Americans are going after, after ISIS. But if you want to fill that out or, or, or correct so, me. Yes. Um, so American uh, air campaign, the American air campaign against ISIS could benefit both the FSA and the Assad regime um, because both the Assad regime and uh, the FSA nominally consider ISIS to be an enemy. Um, the Assad regime, okay, so the Assad regime is in, a, is in its usual double-faced uh, Janus kind of a position in that it buys refined petroleum products in particular from ISIS because it can't refine its, enough of its own uh, gasoline and diesel fuel as well as crude oil. Um, but at the same time, it does, it, it does fight ISIS. It's not true that it doesn't fight ISIS. It does, and they clash, but... Um, not, not they don't fight them very well. Who um, doesn't? The regime the, the doesn't regime, fight them. Yeah, the regime doesn't do very well against jihadists in general. They don't, they don't fare, they don't fare that well. Mm. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of reasons for that, and we can get, we can get to that another part of the discussion. Um, so what's happened is the Assad regime. There, there has been a, a sort of quid pro quo. American jets are flying every day over Syria, and Syria's formidable uh, air defense system is uh, not shooting at them. So then the question is, well, what, what, does, what does the Syrian regime get in exchange for that? Um, and what they get in exchange for that is um, the United States is not actively trying to overthrow the Assad regime. Instead, the Assad regime now is, is focusing its power on the FSA, more, more moderate units. They're not all nationalists. Some of them are Salafists or some of them are jihadists like Jabhat al-Nusra. They're focusing their attention on them to try, to try and gain ground. The Assad regime is garrisoned in the middle of the country at Palmyra and could try and go out into the Euphrates Valley and retake some of these areas. I don't think they're going to. Instead, it's easier for them to try and make a run at encircling Aleppo, their, arguably their largest city. And that's where they try and encircle it first and then starve it out and, um, and then get everyone to agree to a ceasefire. Um, and so I, I think that what we're likely to see if the administration's approach continues is that we'll see the Assad regime regaining in some areas vis-a-vis -vis ISIS and the FSA, but it will be unable to go into the main heartland of ISIS where ISIS is located um, and administer any kind of rule 
i.e. To, to retake and hold those areas. But, but that's because of its own deficiencies. It's yes, not... it, it has a lot of problems inside of the, and this is, I mean, it's well known, you can hear this also from Lebanese circles, even pro-regime Lebanese circles. The, the, the regime forces are very tired. It's very hard when you're, very hard, I think, not just psychologically, um, but also just militarily, for three years for a group of minorities to just savagely mow down a majority of their population and try and shoot your way out of it, right? It's very hard to do that. I mean, it's very hard to, to convince people over and again. So we've seen a couple of even minority factions inside of Syria say, no, I don't want to go serve in the military. There have been some protests in Alawite areas, but most notably there have been some protests in Druze areas last week in Sueda, where they said, no, we don't want to go and volunteer for these death squads. Um, and the reason why I say death squads is a very important little point, and this gets to the Iranian aspect of this. Look at the figures, the death toll figures inside of Syria. In the press, they'll break them down between regime and opposition. But look a little closer. And usually in the story, you'll find it a little bit l l lower down. The number of national defense forces, which are forces that are trained by Iran's Quds Force, they're almost all minorities, Alawites and other minorities, and increasingly Christians. They're enrolled in this... Uh, militia, then their percentage of the death toll is going up rapidly. And it's leading mm. to a lot of communities protesting against the regime and its policies because they're the ones who are having to put their necks on the line right, with Hezbollah and others inside of the country. And you see that just numerically has a real limit because the, 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 the population, the Sunni population is not only bigger, it's far younger. Sunnis have a lot more kids than Alawites and other minorities. It's well known. You can look at it, the statistics bear it out. And so that's the problem the regime has. And that's why they're so desperate, I think, at the moment, to try and get, to try and finesse themselves with America's current hmm. air campaign to save themselves, at least in their own areas. But the problem the United States has is, unlike this old formula we had between ceasefires and trying to overthrow the Assad regime is, I think we're looking at a state now of just partition. I don't see the Assad regime moving into the Euphrates Valley, and I don't see the, the opposition factions all getting together, agreeing on one flag and going and taking Damascus. And that is a big problem that will take a lot more than what we're doing to solve. Um, great. One of the... I do want to come back to that now because you mentioned the Iranian-trained na national defense forces, and, and Mike, you talked about, like, What's the kind of pressure that we can put on Iran to get, uh, to get the Iranians to convince Abadi to let the Sunnis have a fuller role in their own government? And, of course, this seems to be right now from reports, as I uh, mentioned before, it seems to be the opposite. What seems to be happening is that the administration may be uh, providing certain concessions uh, in the nuclear talks because they're eager to have the Iranians buy in on ISIS. So it seems to be going in the wrong direction. I guess the first thing I want to ask is I want to ask you uh, what kind of pressure could we put on the Iranians if we were uh, predisposed to do it? And Hussein and Andrew, what I want to ask the two of you, and, and this, what we may have a, a few minutes for questions after that, is I want to ask, like, how did we get here? Where it seems right now in Washington, the main strategic <laughs> issue is ISIS, when in reality, the main strategic issue has been, since this president took office, it has been the Iranian nuclear program, Iranian nuclear weapons program, 
But right now, with all this concentration on, on ISIS, it seems that the Iranians have slipped to the back, uh, back of the screen. And so I'm going to ask the two of you to, to talk about that a bit. Mike? Okay. The, the one thing that, as you look at the Middle East the last 20 years, uh, Russia has had a consistent strategic message when it comes to the Middle East. China has had a consistent strategic message when it comes to the Middle East. Iran certainly has. Saudi Arabia to some extent. But the one country that everybody's looking to to fix these things has not had a consistent strategic message in the Middle East. So the Sunnis, ebb and f we ebb and flow with how much we're going to support somebody. And that's the problem. I met with the uh, Peshmerga, uh, the commander of the Peshmerga in the hook in 2008, and he said, it's better to be an enemy of the U.S. than a friend, because at least you know where you stand. And what he meant was, well, yeah, we support Israel, but we support them this much because this administration's in power. And we support Israel this much because this administration's in power. Our strategic message needs to be more consistent. So how do you, how do you uh, put pressure on Iran? You, you put pressure on Russia and China and these other countries to put pressure on Iran to say, listen, you need to bring Sunnis into the government. If this ISIS threat is, is serious enough that we need to go after it as an international community, the only people that can kill it are the Sunnis. And the only people that can kill it, or the only thing that can kill the, the ideology of ISIS, are Sunnis and the Quran. It can't be Westerners that are trying to do this. Um, one of the main things, when, when you talk to Sunnis in, in Iraq, and we've said this over and over again, is that they believe that the central government is simply an Iranian puppet. And how do, how do we change that? We're, we're not going to be able to change that. We have to get Iran to change that, and we can't do that, so we need to get these other powers to try to push that. I'm, I am concerned about the nuclear concessions. I'm concerned that we say, okay, well, the nuclear thing is a strategic issue we can deal with two years from now in order to kill this, this, uh, this short, uh, short uh, tactical target or 50-meter target, we used to say in the military. Um, that, that concerns me. And when we see the administration meet with Iranian officials, it's always about nuclear issues, but it's never about, hey, can you pressure a body to get more Sunnis into the security apparatus or to release Sunni political rivals from detention or release key Sunnis that are in, in detention right now that could send messages to the Sunni community, such as the former Minister of Defense, uh, Sultan Hashim Sultan, and uh, former uh, Republican Guard Division commanders that are charismatic Sunnis that were simply arrested, not simply arrested, I shouldn't say that, <laughs> were arrested because of their affiliation with the Ba'ath Party. But anytime this government sees a charismatic Sunni leader that's able to generate or, or have messages resonate in the Sunni communities, they get detained using the terrorism law or the accountability and justice law. It says he used to be a Baptist or somehow affiliated, so he needs to go away for a while or simply removed from a position. I was saying, do the, do the Iranians really care about ISIS? I mean, or is it good for them, like, oh, you know, let the Arabs kill each other? We have, you know, Hezbollah, they're a bunch of Arabs, so what, they're Shia, let them, let them all fight. It keeps things safer on our borders. Do, are they concerned about this? Well, I think, I think they, they love it that they have ISIS. You know, they, have a, they have a good excuse to, uh, to deal with. Uh, sometimes they are concerned, but uh, you know, uh, if, we, if we think about the way we've been handling Iran so far, and, and forget what's, what's happening behind closed doors, just look at the public statements, and, and then you get uh, Zarif and Rouhani and all Iranians saying, um, okay, uh, you know, we go to the Iranians and the president says, uh, we think you're a responsible power and we're ready to share. And the Iranians say, oh, great, we'll replace you in the region. You know? And then the Iranians say, uh, we hate you. And we say, yes, we know, we love you too. Yeah. And, and this is the kind of dialogue we've been having with the Iranians. 
And, um, you know, if, if you're someone in that part of the world and you see that the United States is, has been swinging back and forth, you know, we gave up on our best ally Mubarak only to replace him with a guy who's worse than Mubarak and we're not even bringing up uh, issues of human rights in Egypt. Even the Carter Center closed down yesterday. I mean, and, 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 and this swinging back and forth between, you know, okay, now we're supporting democracy. Okay, now we're not. Now we're talking to Iran. And the, the thing is, we have to be consistent. The policy has to be consistent. And, you know, to my mind, the, the best successful policy that we've had over the past 10 years in Iraq was the surge of troops that, that saved Iraq uh, uh, from Al-Qaeda. Uh, and that surge of troops was ordered by President Bush when he was taking all sorts of political heat in this town from both Republicans and Democrats. So he went against the, the politics and he ordered what, 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 you know, what was right, what was consistent. And this administration is do doing the opposite. You know? They look at the, uh, at the polls and say, okay, now uh, uh, air power is fine. Okay, we'll use air power, even if air power is only good against uh, uh, regular armies, not against militias. Do, do, do you think they have? I mean, do you think the administration has a, look, I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe we should have phrased it like this. Does the administration actually have a real policy toward ISIS or do you think it's, and look, Andrew, I'm going to ask you about this in a second, about the, the messaging campaign regarding Syria, but are we talking about is it a messaging campaign or is it a policy? I, I, don't, I, I don't think they do. Hmm. And I think, you know, Walid Jumblat is now, he's just, he's just ordered the building, Walid Jumblat is the leader of Druze in Lebanon, he just ordered the building of two mosques, one of them in his hometown of Muhtara. he ordered the non-Muslim Druze to start praying five times like, they, like Muslims. And, and he's probably hedging. He thinks the Sunnis are on the rise. He thinks ISIS huh. is on the rise. And he doesn't believe the U.S. has a viable counter-terrorism or counter-ISIS plan. If he thought otherwise, then he'd probably think, okay, that's not a threat and we can survive ISIS. <laughs> Interesting. Um, Andrew, again, I'll, 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 I'll ask sort of the same question. How did we get to this place where three years ago, or a little more than three years ago, March 2011, <coughs> when the Syrian rebellion started, and the uh, strategic common wisdom was to help topple Bashar al-Assad would be a good thing because it would weaken the Iranians. Mm -hmm. And now, more than, uh, more than three years later, where we are, where we are, our concern is ISIS and we're protecting Assad and the Iranians are someone that we seek help from. How did this happen? If you want to talk about a little bit, not just what's happened in the region, but what's happened here in Washington. Yeah, I, I, I think, it, uh, you know, the. The best article I've ever seen summed up summing, summing up the administration's approach. Maybe the more more recent article, I guess. There have been lots of phrases: uh, light footprint, um, um, lead from behind. Maybe what lead from behind was first. I can't remember. And then the Peter Beinart came out the, the minimalist approach. And I think that's what the, the president's doing. He's ramping up things slowly in a minimalist way, hoping for the best outcomes. And it's it's hedging, right? I mean. It's, this is not new. It's, it's not. I, I think the problem we have is that we're. Um, it's increasingly apparent to the American people that we're not achieving our objectives, and that's a big problem. Um, it's a big problem on a number of levels, particularly when you have the growth of a group like ISIS in a very chaotic civil war inside of Syria, where we had stated policies and we didn't achieve them. And that's the reason why ISIS exists there to the degree that it does. If we had armed the rebels earlier. Would we have jihadists in Syria? Yeah, we would. Would we have larger FSA factions that we had uh, sway over? Yes, we would. And we wouldn't be starting from scratch. So the problem I see is that 
the minimalist approach will not take care of ISIS. And that's a problem for the United States. The other problem is that um, our minimalist approach to Syria isn't going to end the war there. And the reason this gets to the Iranian part here, right? Okay, the Iranians and Hezbollah, who they support in Lebanon, and a lot of Shia militias, they intervened in Syria. It's a whole other story, uh, fascinating story in all of this, and that they intervened to prop up the Syrian Arab army and to develop the, the national defense forces inside of Syria to train minorities to kill the majority Sunni population and to shoot them into submission. And that, um, that intervention is due to a couple of things. It's, it, it, it's their resolve to prop up their ally, which backs up Hezbollah in Lebanon, but it's part of a larger issue, I think. And that is you have this thing called the stability-instability paradox. Um, and I know there are lots of nonproliferation people in the region, in the audience probably, who know a lot more about this. But basically it's when a country gets nuclear weapons or nuclear capability or approaches that capability, they t their relations um, and their ability to deter stronger nuclear powers goes up. And that would be here, Israel, the United States, and so on, because you can't wipe out the regime. You have a nuclear weapon you can launch on someone else makes sense. And your relations become suddenly stable. But your tendency to wage proxy wars in the countries around you goes up dramatically. Th thus the stability instability paradox. I think that's where the Iranians are. They are pushing into areas that have traditionally been Arab or Arab speaking for centuries. And they're doing it in unbelievably strong ways. And unfortunately, what they've done in this, it started out as a war between a tyrannical government, minority government, supported by Iran against the against a peaceful uprising in the country. It turned armed. Sunni countries in the region are are dead set. They they are desperate to break this Iranian Shia axis that comes out from Iran, goes through Iraq, through Syria, and then over to Lebanon, in a, in a regime sense. And the way to do that, unfortunately, is to fight them to the last dead Syrian. And that's that's the dynamic here. You mean the 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 Sunni yes, powers? Yes, that is exact, and that's the the fundamental misreading of this administration and the, a lot of other people in Washington too. To be fair, is this is not a police action. This is not a counterterrorism action. This is a larger war in the region that we can we can have all the meetings we want with the Saudis and the Turks <laughs> and everybody else about shutting off the tap to this and the tap to that and so on. Areas. Good luck, because they're not about to do it. Hmm. Because there are a lot of other, they don't see things the same way that we do. It's not because they're bad. It's just that they see them in different ways. And unfortunately, jihadists who are against the United States crop up in these ungoverned spaces and create a lot of mayhem for our national security. Well, I, I was just going to say, it's very interesting the way you're describing this, because, of course, the way that the, the president has put in a number of interviews is that these uh, Sunni-Shia conflicts are bad and proxy wars are bad, and that may be true, but the people in the region would have to look around. They'd conclude, like, I'm sorry, that's what we've been doing for a long time. You heard Hussein talking about the uh, conflict between the Sunni Arab tribes and the Kurds, and this is a part of Kobani. This did not start with ISIS. It's going on for a long time. So the administration clearly needs to get down there and address serious issues, whether it likes it or not. It's going to have to look at it how the people, doesn't necessarily have to address it this way, but it will have to understand how the people in the region see it. Um, I'm going to open it up now for 10 minutes and uh, see if there is a question. 
And if you would wait until, do we have someone in the room with a microphone? Yes, we do. Thank you. Uh, this gentleman right here, sitting right there, if you would just wait. Stand up, please introduce yourself and Hi. ask your question. <coughs> Hi, my name is Noor Jabin. Uh, thank you. Thank, thank you so much for the amazing uh, presentation. Uh, I'm an American Druze, and I'll ask you the, uh, the question of every minority uh, in that region. Basically, if in the future uh, we're going to have U.S. troops on the ground, they will, for obvious reasons, they will definitely uh, work with Iranian-affiliated groups, and this will legitimize their work. And I'm talking here about uh, the Mahdi militias and Hezbollah. So how does that affect uh, the longer-term stability in the region, uh, in Lebanon and in Syria? Thank you. Hussein, would you like to? Would, did, did you say? No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you say American Druze? Okay, so yeah, so Jumblat is leader too. So, yeah. All right, please. Uh, well, the, I think the, the point is uh, at, at this point, uh, if, if you need to clear, because we know that the surge was based on three elements: uh, clear, hold, and transfer. And now the the first two elements are missing. So, uh, or maybe the three of them. So we can't clear. Uh, before we hand over to whether tribes or minorities or anybody else. Uh, so, I mean, talking to the Iranians, yes, you know, uh, there was a joint effort with the, what the, the Shia militias that they call Hashd al-Shabi in Iraq. There was a joint effort. Um, the U.S. fighter jets gave the uh, air power, air cover, and then these uh, Shia militias retook a Turkmen Shia town uh, from ISIS. And of course, Qasem Soleimani was the first to take his pictures, you know, in this liberated area. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if we clear, the towns will go to their native people, whether they're Druze, Sunni, or Shia. And if there's, if, if we clear out of ISIS, and then when we tra transfer whether to Druze or the tribes, then to my mind, that should work. Mike, do you want to? No, no. I, that, okay. That's good with me. All right. Okay. Um, if you could have uh, a woman in the front row here. Hi, I'm Penny Starr with CNS News. I wanted to ask Michael, you said uh, earlier about um, Maliki saying to Petraeus, you know, come in and we'll do anything you want. We heard from the Obama administration for a long time that the war, he wanted to end the war, it was going to end at a specific time, and even with the, uh, the status of forces agreement, we couldn't stay any longer. So what you said seemed to completely contradict that. Can you expand on that, please? Sure, sure. We, we were the only ones back in 2009. you got to remember 2008, 2009, after the surge. We went from 57 attacks per day in Baghdad in 2005, 2006, to 10 attacks nationwide after the surge and after the Sons of Iraq were in place. And at that point, we said, okay, we're going to treat the Iraqi government like, a, like a, an independent government. A sovereign government. We were the only ones doing that. The Iranians were heavily influencing Maliki not to sign the Status of Forces Agreement. Okay, but that didn't mean we couldn't have pushed harder and, and done more things, and we should have. Um, the only thing you could depend upon when, when Joe Biden, I'm sorry, Vice President Biden, came to Baghdad was that there would be rocket attacks on the IZ. That he would show up, he wouldn't be able to go in the castle for about three hours, and then he would leave. And there would be rocket attacks in the meantime. He was, he was given the portfolio to push this, to make this happen. We all, we all knew at the time when we were there that, 
Okay, this isn't like, how do we keep a force here? Well, we do it by doing an advise and assist. We do it with military equipment, military training, and we stay that way. We could have stayed under the caveat of something else, but we chose not to because the protections weren't offered to American soldiers. You were going to be, able to be tried by this Iraqi government, and we couldn't put any soldier in that kind of danger, but more could have been done. Now, that's the biggest thing, you know, 57 attacks, Per do, day in Baghdad. Do, I'm sorry, do you want to elaborate when you say more could have been done? What, what do you mean by that? Well, we could have pushed for the status of force agreement. Said, listen, if you want the F-16s, if you want the, the artillery, if you want our special forces and intelligence capabilities, then we need a status of force agreement. Otherwise, you're not going to have it. And then you use the Kurds and the Sunnis that you had leverage in both communities to put pressure on the central government to do exactly that. We relied too much on the Shias in the government to make those decisions without using leverage. And we literally took our hands off and said, okay, this is, a, this is a sovereign government. Let's see what it does. And it basically had a playbook. You got to remember, um, it was able to sit there for 10 years and watch Lawrence of Arabia walk in for a year. The guy that didn't want to be here walk in for a year. The guy that thought you could simply have a two-hour dinner conversation with him and he'd be able to change your mind for a year. So they developed a playbook. You have these Americans come in and say, what do I need to tell the Americans to get what I want? This is too hard to do. I need more money. You need to back us up when we go after these certain targets. We could have done more, and there were a lot of great Americans who tried, and there were a lot of great Americans who said, don't, don't try. Let's, let's respect, see what the GOI does. Well, look, I, I, without, being, uh, without being facetious, I guess I'm going to ask all of you, because we're about to wrap up here, to answer, look, we all believe that this is important, but the president also has a point as well. How long are the American people supposed to... Uh, commit resources, both their their sons and daughters and their loved ones, as well as money, to Iraq. And we can say now, well, if you don't, then you wind up with a phenomenon like ISIS. And the counterargument might be, is ISIS really a threat to the United States? Yes, they might put some nuts on airplanes and come here, but we may have that anyway. So what is the what is the importance about committing resources to Iraq that we shouldn't have uh, withdrawn resources? and that now we need to again. What's the, what's the argument? Real quick in 30 seconds. Sure. If we coined the phrase recently, Operation Inherent Resolve, if the Iranians coined that same operation phrase, it would be believed because they've demonstrated that in Syria. They've kept Assad afloat. They've demonstrated their willingness to fight in Iraq. But the way we, we approach this with this limited approach, it sounds more like incoherent resolve. And that's, that's the issue, because the Sunnis that we need to fight this thing don't believe us. They don't believe we're there for the long haul. Hussein, I, mean, I, I, I agree. We could have withdrawn, but at least we could have kept uh, the Sahwat on the payrolls, the Sunni fighters. Uh, we could have kept the leverage. Uh, there's no need to throw allies under the bus at every corner. And uh, by the way, when, when we speak about committing resources, think how much Iran is paying. The money that Iran is committing to, to this fight is probably peanuts money compared to what the United States is paying. So again, it only needs consistency and not that much uh, more, uh, not that much money and resources. But if we're swinging and you know, we have to think, uh, we have to think of the visual of when we want to beat ISIS, we go, we, we, uh, our Secretary of State goes and talks to Jawad Zarif, the, the Foreign Minister of Iran. I mean, that sends message to the Sunnis, we're beating ISIS by talking to your enemies, the Shia. So we have to keep these things in mind, and, and I don't think we are. We're just committing all sorts of mistakes, whether visual or otherwise, and we, we then look at ourselves and, and say, why is that happening? Mm.
Andrew, do you want to want to take a stab at this one? I mean, um, I uh, I had the opportunity to go to Moscow earlier this year. I attended a <laughs> conference uh, by the Russian Defense Ministry, um, and um, it was very interesting. Um, and what I think I learned—I mean, it was fascinating—just the, the messaging. They um, they think that President Obama is actually uh, sort of some sort of mastermind. It's very interesting, <laughs> and they they think that okay. he is that President Obama is behind all, what they call the color revolutions all over the world, the Ukraine, uh, what have you, in Syria, and that what Georgia. he does is yeah. through this low minimalist approach, he gets people to rise up against their governments, and then um, it starts a civil war, and then it's used as a pretext for a UN resolution, which then allows mm. for American intervention, then to flip that country over to its side. And then that's the way it projects its power. Organized chaos. Right, yeah. organized chaos. And I thought to myself, I mean, there were only five Americans there, and NATO boycotted it, so we were all, and I remember afterwards just mm. saying to a Russian colleague of mine, I was like, you really think there's a plan? I mean, <laughs> really, really, I can assure you this is not a plan, okay? I've seen plans. Not as far as you You don't even know. have a rumor you're, of a you're, plan. You're okay? not in the it's inner not, circle. It's not, you no, don't no, know. I, I, what I mean is I, I, I think the problem that we have is very simple, that it's very difficult uh, autocracies in general are much better at projecting their power than democracies. It's amazing. Um, even though we relate on a much more personal level and in, in an individual level to the people who are inside of these countries and their aspirations. But we're just not good at projecting uh. our power because, and like uh, we're saying about, you know, what do, I have to talk, what do I have to say to this American to get what I want, right? right? Because they know how to divide us. They know who to invite over. You know, what do you want to do if you want to, right. you know, you invite the following journalists over? They will write... <laughs> That the American government is behind all these secret things are going inside their country, and all we need to do is back X tyrant to shoot their way out of this problem. And the one thing that the Arab Spring did, and it's still inconclusive, is it challenged that notion, huh. right? It didn't. How, it, how it, is that? Well, well, I think that it was, you know, it, it's about um, stability. What is stability? Hmm. And in the case of Syria, we can definitely say, I mean, if you look at the Middle East now, right? You have the Arab Spring being reversed in, in Egypt um, and in other places. But there are other, and you know, Egypt's a nation state, a long historical nation state um, with, a, you know, in, in, with a very strong military with a long tradition. But you have all of these other weak states. So the problem I see with the stability argument is it would make a lot more sense, and therefore the Russian position would make a lot more sense, if you didn't have the reality that their central governments and their militaries are too weak to retake and hold all of their huh. territory. So it's like when, you're taught, when you go to a Kissinger lecture, right, and it's like listening to a symphony and, or, or watching a, a master chess player, and it's just beautiful because all the squares are clear, black and white, and, and I thought, my God, it's just like when I was a kid. But then once it's over, you look at the situation, you realize all of the different squares on the chessboard now are broken. And so you can move your piece over here, but you can't over into these, into these squares. And I think that's the challenge for not only Americans, but everybody. Huh. And if we work together to solve that, I think we can make the... You mean the, to fix the chessboard or well, learn how to play a chessboard that I, is broken? Uh, I'll, I'll use another now. I don't mean to go No, on no, no. It was a good this. analogy. I liked it. But, okay, so my first job was in journalism was Middle East Times in Cairo. And um, we used to have a layout program uh, called Quark. Um, some of you probably have worked in publishing. And, um, and so as young journalists, we would um, 
sometimes to no end, try and depict reality as best we could on the pages of the newspaper. And to the, to the Middle East Times credit, they allowed us to do so. So we would lay it, we would put everything on the, on the, on the, on the page and we would write our words, we put our graphics and so on. But there was this really tense moment when we had to see if it would actually work or not. And it was this button called snap to grid. And you would boom, hit snap to grid. And if what you laid out on the page, which depicted reality, didn't match the grid, the designer looked at you and said, we can't do it, <laughs> right? But in the end, I found that the only way that we ever really published the paper was we had to adjust the grid. I mean, there really was no way around it, right? Because if you didn't, you didn't end up actually solving the problem, right? These problems are ones that humans have been dealing with for millennia. It is normal for political entities to grow and to contract and to break into pieces. And I don't need to, many European friends in the, in the these things are, are solvable. Americans working with their allies can do this Right? But we need to do it in a way that's smart, that makes sense. And actually, we try and achieve our objectives that we outline. Because if not, we'll just be, then the Russians will continuously be able to do what they've done in the last year. And that is use a militia, like right, seize territory, and then annex it over to its own territory and be able to get away with it. I mean, they have sanctions, but be able to get away with it. I, Until I, we can counter that, I think we're going to have a problem projecting our power. I'm, uh, I'm afraid we have to close on that note, but that was really fantastic. And we will, uh, we will reconvene in a few years to see if we, uh, <laughs> if we got the grid right or what happened. In the meantime, thank you all for coming. Thanks to our C-SPAN audience. And thank you, uh, esteemed panelists.